Well, good morning. Welcome to the Tuesday, 3rd of October, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Bede, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, Percy Rockefeller died on September 25th, 1934. You'll hear about his legacy in Greenwich as well as about his home, Owen Oak Farm. The Mayanis Manufacturing Company was doing a thriving business in 1908. A Penobscot mezzo-soprano sang at the North Greenwich Congregational Church. In 1919, new residents were asked why they chose Greenwich to be their home. You'll hear about crimes in 1923, problems with communicating with Mars, and a whole lot more. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. 
Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age era was a remarkable time when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and designed landscapes. The Greatest States Greenwich, Connecticut 1880-1930 book was published by the Junior League of Greenwich years ago. It is superbly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed information. On today's show, you'll hear about Owen Oak Farm, long associated with Percy Rockefeller. Percy Rockefeller, who lived from 1878 to 1934, eight years younger than his brother, William G., also graduated from Yale and then went to work for his father. He became a leading industrialist, at one time serving as a director of 51 corporations, many of them outside the areas of his father's direct interest. In 1923, he was one of the five men in this country whose lives were insured for $3 million or more. However, he too disliked publicity. The New York Times wrote that as an individual, he, quote, remained in the background. He was little known as a personality except to a small circle of intimates, but his boldness and sagacity as a financier were felt definitely in the financial district, unquote. He married Isabel Stillman, who lived from 1876 to 1935, Elsie's sister, in 1901, and like his brother's wedding, his was an event of great social importance and public interest. Percy and Isabel decided to make Greenwich their place of primary residence and proceeded to plan a great house to be built practically on the site of old David Houston's hovel. The Greenwich graphic predicted that, quote, it will take a year to complete the building and surrounds as it will be of more than usual pretensions, unquote. Indeed it was. The New York architects Hisson Weeks designed the house and H.W. Dederdrick of Elizabeth, New Jersey, one of the most famous builders in the United States, directed the work. It was begun in the fall of 1907, and when completed the following year, it was billed, quote, our stateliest mansion, unquote, by the Greenwich News. It was 212 feet in breadth, 68 feet in depth, and had altogether 64 rooms. Since Percy wanted absolute safety from fire, the construction was unusual, with not a piece of wood in the outside double walls. Each of the two walls was built of hollow terracotta blocks, with four inches of airspace between them. This confined airspace was intended to make the house cooler in summer and warmer in winter and drier year-round than the ordinary construction. The fireproof walls were covered on the outside with stucco, and the roof consisted of red tile. The completed mansion cost $500,000 and was called Owen Oak Farm after the Kaskab Indian chief of that name. The main portion of the building was four stories high and had wings on either side of two stories. 
There was a large portico in front with pillars of white freestone, this entrance opening into a library. To the right of the library were the dining room, the breakfast room, the kitchen and related areas, and to the left were the sitting room, the flower room, and Rockefeller's private office. A partial description of one of these rooms will give some idea of the grandeur of the house. The library was some 60 feet long and about half as wide, finished in dark weathered oak, with bookshelves of the same material built into the walls. The ceilings were paneled and hand-decorated. At either end were huge fireplaces with exquisitely carved cans, marble mantelpieces. Most of the other rooms were finished in cherry wood enameled in white. There were other fireplaces of French and Italian marble and some unusually intricate wall carving or oak carving. Floors were of fine hardwood. Since cost was no problem, the butler's pantry and kitchens contained the most modern culinary equipment, including one white metal sink, which alone reported incurred a bill of $700. All the rooms on the second and third floors were elegantly furnished and adequately provided with 14 bathrooms and innumerable closets. Rockefeller's bathroom was some 20 feet square with a shower of marble and glass, even the dozen odd rooms in the servants' quarters were excellently appointed. In the basement were the furnished rooms, the great laundries, and washrooms for the family, a servants' washroom, a huge ironing room, and a drying room to be used when weather did not permit clothes to dry outside. Three tremendous boilers with mammoth fireboxes generated the vapor which heated the house, a new system that did not require pressure. There was adequate space for carriages, besides room to store coal. Three elevators served the house, an electric one for passengers, a hand hoist for freight, and a third for use as a dumbwaiter. A 30 by 60 foot veranda on the eastern end of the building was open to breezes which afforded a magnificent view of the sound. From the site, it was possible to see the surrounding country for miles, yet it was easily accessible from Greenwich. One of the many social events which took place at the estate was the reception following the wedding of one of Rockefeller's four daughters, Isabel, to Frank Lincoln in the fall of 1925. Over 4,500 invitations were issued, and newspapers reported that thousands were present. After the ceremony at Christ Church, guests were received at Owen Oak Farm in the library, which had been decorated with Easter lilies. Fragrant lilies of the valley were placed in the dining room, where 54 people were seated for dinner. Buffet refreshments were served on the south veranda, made festive for the reception with orange trees, while the east porch was transformed into a dancing pavilion with blooming vines as the decorative feature. John D. Rockefeller drove over from Pocantico Hills for the occasion. Ceruccio Vitale landscaped Owen Oak Farm's grounds. His plans provided for spectacular plantings and gardens. Carefully selected shrubs and trees were tended by the many gardeners who weeded, trimmed, and transplanted. Horses wearing leather shoes drew the mowers, which kept the lawns cut to perfection. An enclosed one-acre vegetable garden supplied the family with vegetables. In 1911, Rockefeller, in a burst of enthusiasm to learn about unfamiliar trees, hired a forest engineer to set out 
39 species of evergreens and hardwoods so that he could observe their characteristics and growth. The unique part of their father's land, known as Deer Park, eventually owned jointly by William G. and Percy Rockefeller, deserves description of its own. A writer for the Greenwich Geographic wrote, quote, What nature has not done, money has secured. Beautiful drives wind in and out among the groves of trees and artificial lakes upon which swans and ducks sail gracefully along, have been made here and there about the park. Brooks wind picturesquely over, under overhanging rocks in which shining trout swim peacefully with no fear of the angler's fly. Tame deer run to visitors and eat from their hands, and silken-haired angora coat, uh, goats eat from fertile pastures. The western log hut, made from logs cut in Michigan expressly for the purpose, is a cool and comfortable retreat, unquote. The half-mile track racetrack used for years for both racing and gymkhanas was situated in Deer Park. William Rockefeller and his two sons as well were excellent horsemen, and riding had become an important part of their lives. William G. had famously had famous kennel of beagles and foxhounds in the park. The dogs he bred won many ribbons, but he closed the kennels in 1910, giving the animals to the kennel master because their barking near his home got on his nerves. <laughs> Deer Park also had large stables for the workhorses used on both estates. Cows and pigs were kept there, too. The superintendent and his family lived in the park, and a carpenter's shop an enormous hay barn were used jointly by the brothers. The high wooden fence surrounding the park to keep the deer from escaping was a landmark in Greenwich for years. The striking beautiful stone walls on the Rockefeller properties are another familiar feature to residents of Greenwich. By 1899, about eight miles of walls marked roadside boundaries and divided fields. Most of the roadside walls were double, the field walls single in width. Greenwich workers employed during the spring and summer collected at the many stones from the fields and to make their work easier used a huge ingenious machine described by the Greenwich graphic as, quote, gallows-like, unquote. They were so skillful at fitting the pieces of rock together without the use of mortar that today many of these walls remain in excellent condition. The New York Times declared in 1908 that William G. and Percy Rockefeller were preparing to buy up land in Greenwich, quote, which in area and value will perhaps outrival the vast estates of John D. Rockefeller in Terrytown, New York. It is reported that they intend to open a residential park with their own residences at, as the center, unquote. Their ideas came to fruition in the years that followed, but not exactly as they had planned. After Elsie died in 1935, 13 years after William's death, her house was torn down as it proved difficult to sell. Percy died in 1934, and Isabel died 11 months later. Since the market for such vast homes was limited, Owen Oak Farm was demolished three years, years later. Pneumatic hammers, steam shovels, and dynamite were used. Park Bernay galleries auctioned off Oriental rugs, early Flemish and French tapestries, French salon suites, Renaissance-carved walnut furniture, and Chinese porcelains, silver, crystal, and paintings. The development of a residential park, quote-unquote, has, though without its two grand houses, proceeded over the years. 
Small estates and other parcels of land were sold with restrictions set and building plans approved by the Rockefeller family. This far-sighted policy was instituted before the town adopted such restrictions of its own. Thus, the sale of lots and the construction of substantial homes has taken place in an orderly manner on an enormous amount of prime property in central Greenwich. The business acumen, financial resources, and foresight of William Rockefeller and his two sons, combined with their love of Greenwich, have left a legacy to the town which its residents continue to enjoy today. The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930, published book by the Junior League of Greenwich, is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library System. Visit GreenwichLibrary.org or your nearest branch. On Wednesday, September 26, 1934, the people of Greenwich opened their newspapers and read the following editorial about Percy A. Rockefeller. Announcement of the death of Percy A. Rockefeller, one of Greenwich's best-known residents, shocked the town yesterday morning, for while he was of a retiring nature, his vast wealth and his generous interest in whatever pertained to the upbuilding or betterment of the town had made his name outstanding, not only in Greenwich, but throughout the country. His sympathy with all good ventures, accompanied by strong financial support, has contributed largely to the development of every project of the town and will stand as a monument to one who lived quietly, yet generously aided his summer home town. His interest in the Boy Scouts and the YMCA afforded him great personal satisfaction. With true Rockefeller insight and intuition, Percy Rockefeller possessed the power and the faculty of increasing his inheritance, his executive ability, and financial background aiding in building up the largest estate in Greenwich and one of the largest in the country, although the slump of 29, that would be 1929, laid a heavy hand on him. Appreciation of his ability and cooperation is shown in his personal connection with 50 different companies, including the most outstanding corporations in the United States. The name of Rockefeller has been as a Gibraltar in Greenwich for about half a century, successive generations carrying out the family traditions, marking the name almost equal to a landmark. And in the passing of Percy Rockefeller, the town feels a great loss and extends its deepest sympathy to the family. A reporter by the name of George T. Slavin of the Greenwich Daily, let's see, the Daily News, uh, on Wednesday, September 26, 1934, reported on the reaction of, of uh, Percy Rockefeller's passing by his employees at Owen Oak Farm. And I'd like to share this with you. When the folks at Owen Oak Farm tell you Percy Rockefeller was a kind man with a warm heart for men, women, and children, regardless of station, they show tears in reddened eyes. Owen Oak, the 300-acre estate in Lake Avenue, which the financier called home a quarter century, smiled under the sun yesterday afternoon in contrast to spirits of its occupants, including men and women who served Mr. Rockefeller more than 20 years. Quote, taking orders from Mr. Rockefeller was like listening to music, unquote. Lauren H. Conger, for 36 years superintendent of the estate, told the Daily News Graphic reporter. Quote, tiptoe 
is about the only creature who is happy on this place today, unquote, said Mrs. Conger, employed by Mr. Rockefeller for 22 years, and tears were in her eyes as she pointed to the chubby Boston bulldog, which pranced about seeking affection from everybody, even the strange reporter. You can't say too much for Mr. Rockefeller, was the comment of Gus Gustafson, 13 years a chauffeur for the financier in Greenwich and New York. When he gave you an order, it was like talking to a close friend. He was surely a gentleman of the old school. The death yesterday morning of the prominent stock market operator at the age of 56 altered Mr. Conger's annual preparations to take 30 of the Rockefeller stable of nearly 50 horses to Overhills near Pinehurst, North Carolina, where the financier maintained an estate even bigger than the one here. I don't believe there was a man, woman, or child on the place who did not love Mr. Rockefeller and grieved to see him go, Mr. Conger said, between dabs at tears, which for the most part rolled, part rolled unashamed down his cheeks. He always said, never hurt anybody's feelings. That was his motto. I was with him 36 years, and in all that time, he never had a harsh word and never had the slightest tendency to find fault. He was the kindest man to his help. Countless instances in which Mr. Rockefeller went to pains to bring comfort and assistance to those in need came to his attention in the 36 years in which he knew his employer, the superintendent said. In each instance, the, mil the millionaire demanded and obtained all the secrecy necessary to shield recipients of his favors from publicity, Mr. Conger said. He said he never recalled the financier's attention to an individual or even a family in need, that aid was not forthcoming. Henry McLean, a young American Negro, who suffered a broken leg hunting in the Carolina estate December 15, has remained on the Rockefeller payroll, although unable to work, the superintendent declared. On another occasion, Mr. Rockefeller, learning through an office attaché that a former employee on the estate was in want, dispatched Mr. Conger to Blackwell's Island, where the former employee a charge of the city of New York received every possible convenience and consideration before he died. Although ailing in the last two years, the financier complained a little and almost daily made the journey from his home in Lake Avenue to the Greenwich Railroad Station and thence to his office in Broadway, New York. It was his custom to spend a large part of the winter on his Carolina estate, where he enjoyed an occasional ride behind the hounds fox hunting. Lawrence E. Radford, a nephew of Mr. Conger and a frequent companion of Mr. Rockefeller on hunting excursions over, at Overhills, add he found the financier ever kind and disposed to place the comfort and convenience of others before his own. Tony and Jake, many years employed as gardeners on the, on the Lake Avenue estate, were sad too. The best kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis 
and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Abilis for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates or its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. I'd like you to mark your calendars for this coming Thursday, October 5th, 2023, for an online event that I'm going to strongly recommend to you. This is something that came from Chris Franco, and I happen to know this in Facebook, which I am on quite a lot. Commodore Robert E. Todd, Tales of a Visionary's Odyssey webinar, um, is about the brother of J. Kennedy Todd. We know that name very well. Uh, especially if you live in the old Greenwich area, because um, he was the man who created in his Arden. We know it today as Greenwich Point, or it was known actually by many of us as Todd's Point. Now, uh, let me just read this to you. While Commodore Robert Elliot Todd might not be a household name today, his accomplishments are astonishing. Railroad tycoon, financial mogul, yachtsman, equestrian, hunt leader, World War I commander, presidential appointed commissioner. Who was this late 19th and early 20th century Renaissance man, and how did he reshape American history? Well, you can find out 
uh, on this webinar, and it is hosted by the New York Adventure Club. I happen to be a big fan, by the way, of the New York Adventure Club. You can learn about it by going to nyadventureclub.com. Uh, this is listed under the virtual events. Um, the tickets are only $10. Uh, and again, this is for this coming Thursday, October 5th, 2023. It begins at 5.30 p.m. and goes until 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. In September 1923, the North Greenwich Congregational Church up in Greenwich's backcountry played host to a very unique princess who came and sang. And the story goes as follows. Princess Watawaso, a full-blooded Penobscot Indian mezzo-soprano, gave a recital before a large audience in, at the North Greenwich Congregational Church last evening. It was her second appearance in Greenwich, and as one the former occasion, she delighted with her dances, Indian songs, and legends, her voice being one of unusual richness and quality, showing fine cultivation. One of her best numbers was, quote, the Chippewa Moaning Song, unquote. Other songs included The Sacrifice, An Oneida Prayer, In Mirrored Waters, and A Sioux Canoe Song. The audience showed its appreciation of her work by demanding numerous encores. In many of her songs, she appeared in costume. Ms. Nan Houston was chairman of the Committee of Arrangements. Well, you know, it seems in the early years of the 21st century that we find ourselves, Elon Musk has done a great deal uh, to educate us about um, possible colonization of, of Mars. This was a story that I ran into um, that was printed um, in October 1920 and was read by the people of Greenwich. Um, and it was about the difficulties about communicating with, uh, with Mars. Uh, not that anyone was there to receive any messages, but you never know. In attempting to communicate with Mars, there are several factors that may be taken into consideration, says the story. Henry Meyer of Center College summed these up at a recent meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. He said that in the first place, the probability or probable low temperature uh, rarefied atmosphere and absence of water on Mars are against the existence there of beings similar to ourselves. In the next place, signaling by light must be given up for the reason that the Earth's atmosphere would absorb 40% of the light sent out, and the distance was so great that an area of light 10 miles square on the Earth would, if seen from Mars through a telescope, magnify 500 times appear like an area one inch square viewed at a distance of 500 feet. In considering signals by radio, it has been computed that it would require a current of a million amps at the sending station to obtain one of one amp at the receiving station on Mars. <laughs> at Mr. And Mr. Meyer remarked that the powerful electric current sent out by the sun would probably overwhelm the weak waves sent by the Earth. 
In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup. Ample free parking member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. All right, I have a question for you. Have you heard of, or, or are you aware of what an automobile robe is? Have you heard of that? Well, I hadn't, uh, but in fact, I had to go to the Pulsar Museum of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. to find out what this was. Thank goodness for the internet, if you catch my drift. Anyway, the automobile or driver's robe was manufactured um, and it protects drivers of the day from cold and dirt associated with open-air vehicles. The robe is just over four feet tall and maybe 40 inches wide. It's also called a lap robe. Um, it's a rubberized canvas lined with uh, you know, with wool and what have you. Anyway, um, believe it or not, I found an article that said that we had a place here in Greenwich that manufactured these, and they were manufactured um, about, let's see, in the uh, early 1900s. And that was done at the Mayanis Manufacturing Company. It wasn't the only place that did that, but um, I thought that I would share at least an excerpt of this uh, story to kind of educate you about uh, what, uh, what this is. A short but pretty automobile trip up the west side of the Mayanis River takes one by delightfully shaded roads and pass interesting spots on to the doors of the Mayanis Manufacturing Company's extensive woolen mills, where the finest product of automobile and carriage robes made in this or any other country is turned out every day. This company, starting in 1899, has proven successful even from the start, and now prides itself not alone upon its fine plant, but more upon the quality of the goods produced there which is widely and favorably known in every part of the world. I have to admit I didn't know that. All right. From the day automobiles came uh, late, uh, popu uh, became popular uh, in the use of this factory, which was made its reputation on the one of the carriage robes, plush goods, and the finest quality of blankets, has been bringing its highest ingenuity and still into play to produce automobile robes which would effectively set off any grade or color of car and at the same time give the best of protection to the user. The result has been a large assortment of these robes in all designs and sizes and with prices to suit the convenience of all. Well, that's always good. We like that. The story goes on. A few days ago, the writer took a trip by auto up the Mayanus Valley, um, and hunted up the hunt manager, F.A. Springer, and asking his permission to go through the mills and found him in uh, cocktails, willing and interesting guide, who led the way from department to department, pointing out as we went along and explaining the process of manufacturing robes and other goods from 
the time the raw product is touched to the time the finished product lie in stacks ready for shipment to agents in various countries. How about that? We were shown first the picker room, where the raw stock is laid in batches by putting through the, uh, I can't read that, the uh, mining pretzer in, laying the raw stock, many qualities are mixed to make the proper blend. After the raw material leaves the picker, it is discharged by machinery into the gauze room, there to be put through the lumper, which removes all foreign particles and purifies the stock. From this room, it is sent by means of an immense blower to the top floor of the factory, where it goes into one of ten bins. From the bins, the stock is sent to the second floor and is deposited close to the carting machines, five in all. There it is fed into the carting machine, and by the process of many revolving cylinders, the fibers are straightened out and any extraneous substance which might have clung to them thus far is removed. From this machine, the material comes out like gauze and is folded in strips, which, passing over a camelback machine, is fed into a traveling apron, which carries it back to be carded finer. Um, at the other end of the machine, it comes out in many divisions called roving and is wound on spools. These spools are taken to the spinning frames, each of which has 288 spindles where the roving is spun into yarn and wound on bobbins. The bobbins are then taken to the winders or winders, which wind the yarn and spools doing away with furthermore use of the bobbin. This yarn is now taken to the wave room, where by an interesting process it is wo oh the weave room, I stand correct. It is woven into robe and blanket stock. From this room it goes into the basement where it is folded or shrunk to give it the desired size. Then it is washed and taken to the napping machines, which finish the face. From there it goes to the dyeing room, where the colored stock is dyed and the white stock is imprinted. Well, that's good. Then it is sent to the drying room on the top floor. The different patterns are then imprinted on the cloth, which is then hung on iron frames and placed in the steam box, which sets the colors fast. There they are washed, proving that the colors are fast. Then again, they are taken to the dry room to have the nap whipped up straight, and there they go to the dry finishing room to have the nap sheared. Well, this is quite a process. Uh, and then as we start to close, then the goods are cut into sizes for robes, and backs are sewed on, and they are now in their finished state and have only to be taken to the shipping room where they go there to all parts of the country. Well, that's very good. Uh, so that was something that was interesting. I didn't know that people wore extra protective uh, clothing uh, called odor robes in this case when they were out driving in their open-air cars. This story, by the way, was printed in the Greenwich News on September 18, 1908. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Today's crime story comes from the Friday, September 21st, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic Thieves Abandoned Stolen Auto. Confused by detour, they find themselves in Belhaven. Hmm. A Buick automobile which had been stolen in Brooklyn, New York, was abandoned in Belhaven Wednesday night after the two thieves had refused to stop when ordered to do so by Special Officer Alfred Long. 
The driver of the car evidently became bewildered by being obliged to take the detour around the shore road, which leads to Hamilton Avenue, and then through one of the side streets to the Boston Post Road, as he turned off and went around by Belhaven. Because of the privacy of this section, Officer Long has received instructions from the residents living in that locality to stop all non-resident automobilists who drive through Belhaven at night. Officer Long signaled for the driver of the Buick to stop, but instead of complying with the officer's request, the driver put on more gas. Later, caretaker Kelly of the RAC Smith Estate found the car abandoned on the property and notified the police. The police were unable to round up their thieves as they had made good their escape. Sergeant James H. Fitzroy notified the New York police and was later informed that the car belonged to Samuel Hamber. Uh, of 51 Clark Street, Brooklyn. The car was turned over to the owner yesterday. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to the Tuesday, the 3rd of October, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Please look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 10th of October, 2023. See you next week. Bye now.